In Bible days, the people of the ancient Assyrian capital, Nineveh, were miraculously saved from imminent destruction. God ordained that an unwilling Jewish prophet named Jonah should go to Nineveh with a message that inspired a wave of sincere repentance. That wholesale repentance of Nineveh was one of the greatest moves of God in Bible history. Do we believe God can and will move with such spectacular compassion again on our nations? And will the ancient nation of Assyria arise again from the dead? Does Assyria have, as it were, a second coming? The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by you, the viewers. Thank you for watching. Everyone is going through an unprecedented time when medical science and politicians are trying to manage the pandemic crisis. It's a time when many are seeking the word of God to give hope and meaning to their lives. And there's never been a better opportunity for our ministry. So we want to say thank you to the viewers of Jerusalem Channel who have continued to make our programs possible. With your prayers and support, we can finance the cost to send video streaming around the world. Each week our audience grows and we're even exploring ways to subtitle shows into other languages. So it's with your help that we can bring a good word, the gospel truth through Jerusalem Channel. And especially at this time, please continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darg. Among the three most favored nations listed by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 19, verses 24 to 25, are Egypt, Israel, and Assyria. Israel, God's inheritance, was my first love, heart and soul. Then God took me to Egypt, whom he calls my people in Isaiah 19, and I also embraced Egypt, heart and soul. Then God enlarged my heart for Assyria, an ancient nation that God calls the work of his hands. And after traveling through modern Iraq, I also took the land of Assyria into my heart. Assyria must rise again. Of the three end time nations mentioned in Isaiah chapter 19, Assyria is the missing link, the missing puzzle piece on the map. But when Assyria arises again, it will surely be a great miracle of epic biblical proportions, truly the work of God's hands. I believe God remembers and cherishes the great heartfelt repentance of the Assyrians and how they humbled themselves in the dust at the preaching of the prophet Jonah. Now we're living in a time when the ancient prophecy of Isaiah 19 is coming to pass. The prophet Isaiah was active in the days of Jerusalem's first temple, in the days of the kingdom of Judah and the Assyrian empire. Isaiah was one of the most important and influential prophets in the Bible. And in one of his famous prophecies, he envisioned a great future for the nation of Israel together with the two superpowers of his day, Egypt and Assyria. Let's look at that prophecy starting with verse 23 in Isaiah 19. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, 
and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. So this great prophecy describes a future messianic league between Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, with Israel acting as the intermediary. In the future, Israel's faith won't compete with the religions of the Egyptians and ancient Assyrians. The prophet's vision eliminates the oft-repeated mantra we've heard too often about the three great monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Isaiah envisioned monotheism, but with the God of Israel ruling over all the nations under the leadership of King Messiah. That's the prophecy of Isaiah 19, the marriage of nations at the altar of Israel's God and his Messiah. Now, the global elites believe that such unity can only be achieved through diplomacy or a one-world government. The Antichrist will make Satan's last-ditch effort to rule the world, but only the Prince of Peace's second coming will accomplish true unity. When we consider the prophecy of Isaiah, we think of the origin and the footsteps of the biblical patriarchs. Abraham, the father of faith, came from Mesopotamia to inherit the promised land in Canaan, but he also sojourned into Egypt. And Abraham's grandson, Jacob, also journeyed in Haran in Mesopotamia, as well as Egypt. These journeys of the patriarchs were a precursor of the holy highway that will stretch from Egypt to Assyria. In Isaiah's vision, there will be no closed borders between the three peoples. There will be common worship and the blessing of God resting over all three nations. The Hebrew verse predicting the Egyptians serving with the Assyrians means that they will worship with the Assyrians. The Isaiah 19 prophecy has mysterious words yet to be fulfilled, even though there was already a partial fulfillment on the day of Pentecost, as we read in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, In Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit was outpoured, there were present God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, and each heard the good news in his own native tongue, both Jews and converts to Judaism. They heard the Spirit-filled disciples of Jesus supernaturally praising and declaring the wonders of God in many tongues. Those visiting, it says, in Jerusalem were from Medea, Parthians, Elamites, together with dwellers in Mesopotamia, joined with those of Egypt, as well as those from Libya, Cyrene, and Judea, Cretans, and Arabs, visitors from Rome, all acknowledging the power of the exalted Savior and the mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, according to Isaiah 19, in the future after the church age, Israel will no longer exclusively be God's people, but amazingly, Israel's former foes, Egypt and Assyria, will also have a claim upon the God of Israel. 
And to express this, two of Israel's titles of honor are given by God to Egypt and Assyria, my people and the work of my hands. While the title assigned to Israel, mine inheritance, summarizes Israel's intimate history with God. Egypt and Assyria will be upgraded. Israel is not demoted, but will become the center of blessing to the entire earth. The great powers which previously were enemies will be reconciled to the worship of the true God, creating genuine fellowship and communication. Bible commentaries explain all this is brought about by the central state of Israel, which becomes a blessing to the whole circuit of the earth. It's a grand prophecy for the end times when national prejudices will be eliminated and racial harmony will flow from a common source of salvation, the God of Israel and his Messiah. Although Egypt and Assyria were ancient oppressors of Israel, yet in the future, no doubt in the millennial kingdom of Jesus, both Egypt and Assyria will reside with Israel under the banner of God. It's a prophecy of universal worship during the millennial rule of King Messiah. Today, Egypt still exists. Israel has been miraculously resurrected in our lifetime. And now we await the rising again of the third party, ancient Assyria. In our lifetime, under the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, there were plans to create an autonomous province for Assyrian Christians, but that plan was crushed by war. How Assyria will arise is in God's hands, but meanwhile, borders are continually being trashed and ill-defined through wars, terrorism, and unrest in the region. All we know for sure is, according to this Bible prophecy in Isaiah 19, the ancient nation of Assyria will arise again. We also know God can do it. Our faith is strong because of the miracle we've witnessed of modern Israel's resurrection. In Israel, Memorial Day officially begins in the evening with a siren that lasts for a minute, followed by solemn ceremonies remembering the fallen. The next morning at 11 a.m., a siren wails again throughout Israel, and for two minutes, everybody stops what they're doing. If they're driving a car or a truck, they will pull over, get out of their vehicles, and stand in silence in memory of all those who have perished since 1948. Then the mood shifts 180 degrees later that evening, and celebrations erupt into Independence Day. Going from tears to joy, the back-to-back -back celebrations of Memorial Day and Independence Day illustrate the quick miracle of Israel accomplished by the Almighty. The Bible had predicted that God would faithfully regather his people and plant them again back in their own land of Israel. God promised it would happen in a single day, and it did. As Isaiah chapter 66 says, who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a nation be born in a day or be brought forth in a moment? Yet, as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Indeed, never in history has such a thing happened. But God is a promise keeper. 
As foretold in the Hebrew prophets, Israel was born in one day on the 14th of May, 1948. So now, in light of the prophecy of Isaiah 19, the question begs to be asked, will God do the same thing for Assyria? Will Assyria be restored miraculously in the future? Well, there are three million Assyrians today living in Iraq, in Syria, scattered in neighboring nations, and as far away as Australia and so forth, out in the diaspora, due to persecutions by ISIS. And most are Christians today. The Assyrians were not only present at Pentecost, they were also evangelized by Jerusalem's apostles and disciples, and they've kept the faith for nearly 2,000 years, despite continual persecution. When former President Bush explained his objectives behind the 2003 invasion of Iraq, promising to end the oppressive regime of Saddam Hussein, to secure freedom for all Iraqi people regardless of their religious beliefs, the indigenous Assyrians and other smaller groups in Iraq were jubilant. But it didn't take long before the indigenous Assyrian Christians were overrun and betrayed. The continuous attacks on the Christians in Iraq and bombing of churches started in 2004 and intensified through 2011. And in 2014, ISIS invaded the Assyrian and Yazidi towns in northern Iraq. It was a new tragedy and genocide. Christians were murdered and dispersed and historic sites were destroyed, including the tomb of the prophet Jonah. More recently, in the city of Mosul, which formerly was ancient Nineveh, there's a court fight going on over property that could result in the partial destruction of a 3,000-year-old wall built during the Assyrian Empire. The ruins of the ancient capital of Assyria are opposite Mosul on the Tigris River in northern Iraq. And any destruction of the ancient wall would be a great loss to the heritage of Assyrians and to the international community. You see, we're watching news headlines coming out of this region because we know that ancient Assyria must arise again. So God is shaking the region. Like the Jews during the Diaspora, the Christian Assyrians have suffered and wandered. And as the state of Israel arose out of the ashes, so Assyria must also arise. Recently, I read about an Assyrian man living in the Diaspora who had a vision of Jesus. And in the vision, Jesus was praying to the Father concerning his fellow Assyrians. And Jesus said in the vision, they have suffered enough. And I'm reminded of the prophetic principle laid down in the Hebrew scriptures in Habakkuk 2.3. For the vision awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it tarries, wait for it. It will surely come and not delay. Well, Yaakov Meoz is an Assyrian Jew living in Israel who says one way to fight anti-Semitism and strengthen ties with Israel the Middle East's only democracy, is to foster Israel-Assyrian relationships. Presently, there are about 50,000 Assyrian Jews in Israel who still speak Aramaic, called Aramit or Asherit in Hebrew. These Assyrian Jews, who hail from the original Ashur in the book of Genesis, 
provide a great potential for bridge building between the Jewish and Assyrian nations. Yaakov Meaz has pledged to work toward diplomatic relations between Israel and the Assyrian people. And he prays that we'll be privileged to see the establishment of the state of Assyria in the biblical land of Assyria in our lifetime. I believe it's going to be epic. Although ancient Assyria had a history of opposing the Almighty, they also repented. So what do you imagine is the Bible's biggest miracle? Well, surely the parting of the Red Sea would be in the top 10. And of course, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But also one of the greatest displays of God's power is recorded in the little book of Jonah in the Hebrew Bible. And I'm not just talking about the miracle of Jonah surviving being swallowed by the big fish. I'm thinking of the citywide repentance of Nineveh because of a solitary street preacher, the prophet Jonah. What's so remarkable about the move of God in Nineveh is that the entire city responded to a hellfire and damnation preacher. Jonah was an Israelite patriot, so he loathed the Assyrians as an enemy nation. He certainly didn't preach out of a heart of compassion. In fact, he tried to run away from God, but in the end, he proved to be one of the greatest examples of weak human beings who accomplish great exploits not by might nor by power, but by the spirit of the living God. Jonah, the runaway prophet, became a successful preacher due to his eventual obedience. In the beginning, he was thoroughly unwilling, and his reason is stated in Jonah 4.2. He was fearful that the Assyrians would repent, obligating God to forgive them and spare their lives. But Jonah's incarceration in the great fish resulted in his consecration. In Judaism, the story of Jonah represents the teachings of Teshuvah, which is the ability to repent and be forgiven by God. And I find it fascinating. Here's a little factoid. According to one Jewish tradition, Jonah was the boy who was brought back to life by the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. And another tradition claims that Jonah was the son brought back to life, resurrected from the dead by the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 4. The book of Jonah is read in the synagogues on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And in the New Testament, Jesus called himself one greater than Jonah. And he promised the Pharisees the sign of Jonah, which was his resurrection after burial three days and nights in the belly of the earth. Jonah's resurrection from the great fish prefigured Jesus' own resurrection. Jonah emerging from the fish was seen as a parallel of Jesus emerging from the tomb. Let's look in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law demanded of Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And now listen to what Jesus said next. And the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And now someone greater than Jonah is here. By the way, this theology is depicted in Michelangelo's fresco on the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Michelangelo depicted both Jonah and Jesus at the Last Judgment to signify Jonah as Jesus' precursor and prophetic sign. But the Ninevites repented at the preaching of the lesser prophet. This profound fact keeps reverberating in my spirit that the people of Nineveh humbled themselves in the greatest repentant service, perhaps in the whole history of the Bible and the world. Consequently, any generation, including Jesus's, that doesn't repent will be condemned by the righteous Ninevites. The rising up of the men of Nineveh on Judgment Day alludes to the custom of witnesses standing up in a court to give testimony. Jesus was greater than Jonah, and he was authenticated by innumerable prophecies and messianic miracles. Furthermore, Jesus was fully obedient to the Father. Jonah's obedience was delayed. He preached in Nineveh only because he discovered he couldn't escape from God. So after being vomited from the great fish onto dry land, Jonah resolved to obey God's order to prophesy against Nineveh. One might expect the Ninevites to respond with the same derision that we often see hurled against street preachers today. In Britain, it's become quite common for street preachers to be arrested for disturbing the peace. But it was an entirely different scenario in Nineveh. People famous for their warfare and cruelty were brought down on their knees. No doubt counselors would have advised Jonah that Nineveh was an impossible challenge. It was a proud metropolis, overflowing with wealth, filled with insolence and luxury. But God's order was to prophesy against the city because the Lord said, their great wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah moved through the city, lifting up his voice and prophesying his one-sentence sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes. It was absolutely awesome. And this teaches us, so what's to stop us from believing God if he sends us into the most difficult situations? Without apology, Jonah strode across the city, a great city many miles wide, bravely alone. If we're sent somewhere by God, we can only declare the message he gives us. To be accurate, nothing more, nothing less. And the commentaries say the preacher's true function is to declare the message that God commands. We must convey the mind of God, not sentiments or personal opinions. And please note that Jonah spoke exactly what God had bid him to say, whether people wanted to hear it or not. Of course, at some point, he must have also shared his testimony, how God had spared his life in the belly of the fish. His preaching was certainly supernatural and highly anointed, catching the people's attention. The message of impending judgment and repentance for sins rang true, and they acknowledged their guilt. Amazingly, we read in Jonah chapter 3, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them even to the least. When Jonah's warning reached the king, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust and ashes in repentance. 
And the king issued a proclamation, it says, saying in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, no person, animal herd or flock is to taste anything. They're not to eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, the king said, God may turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Can you imagine? Have you ever seen a revival where the animals wear sackcloth? This was serious. And the king's statement reminded me of the words of Mordechai in the book of Esther 4.14 when he called Esther to action on behalf of the endangered Jewish people. He said, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So in Nineveh, the king said, we're all going to repent because who knows, God may decide to reverse his sentence of doom against us. And when God saw their humility and that they had turned from their evil ways, he relented from the disaster he had threatened. This is all because the people believed God's messenger. The simple preaching of God's word worked faith and repentance in them. And what a sight at sundown. The people sat down in sackcloth and the king was among them covered with ashes. Can you imagine any of our Western leaders behaving and humbling themselves like this? So far, we haven't seen anything to equal it, but nothing is impossible with God. The Ninevites cried out to God to turn away his wrath. And this repentance was a display of the power of the living God. And Jesus, who knew men's hearts, testified that it was a genuine move of God because he said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment to confront and condemn an unbelieving generation. The Lord commended Nineveh because they had simply believed God and acknowledged that God's wrath burns against sin. The mark of true repentance is when people behave like Nineveh behaved. Our problem today is that many no longer believe in God and that he's not just a God of love, but also a God of judgment. Many of our nations are in great peril. Let's return to God and cry out in repentance, echoing the words of the Assyrian king. Who can tell if God will turn away from his fierce anger and we perish not? The men of Nineveh will stand up in the last day They'll testify against every wicked generation that refuses the word of God and doesn't repent at the preaching of this word. Well, this account in the book of Jonah tells us that God's word is power. Our job is to share this message. Then we can look to God to add his blessing. Without apology and without shame, we preach Messiah crucified. All past sins are absolutely forgiven and removed so that we'll never be brought into judgment for our sins. By receiving God's Son, Jesus, we ourselves are admitted into God's family. We're counted among His own children and given free access to His presence through the sacrificial blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus. God's offer of forgiveness is immediate 
as soon as we receive it. There's no probation period. We don't have to wait to approve ourselves. In the name of Jesus, at once, as soon as we return to God, we're welcomed to the home of our Father in heaven. So, speaking as an ambassador for Messiah, I invite you now to put your trust in so great a Savior. Amen. In the meantime, let's be continually aware that great Bible prophecies are being fulfilled all around us. There's much more to share at our website, exploits.tv, where you can watch our free video library. Our ministry is called Exploits, based upon Daniel 11.32, declaring the people who know their God will be strong and do exploits. By the way, let's connect on social media, and don't forget to download our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app so you can watch our videos on your phones or tablets. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Maranatha, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with you. I'm Christine Darg. Shalom. <music>